If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you pray with me? We wonder, Holy One, if Ezekiel had a hard time delivering your message, which was, I I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Was Ezekiel more like us than not? Which is to say, was he not so secretly harboring a desire to see certain people get what they deserve? Was he highly anticipating the comes around part of what goes around? Was he disappointed that you weren't going to bring the hammer down? It would be hard for some of us to deliver that message. There are people running around doing real damage and seemingly with glee, pulling library books, pushing Christian nationalism, pressing racial division, poking more holes in the few safety nets that exist. We've been assured that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's, it's just that we're not sure you will handle it the way we think it should be handled. But you said what you said and practice makes progress. So while they are somewhat begrudging, our prayers are for repentance and reconciliation. Help us release the white knuckle grip we have on getting even. Open our hearts to see even the smallest path towards peace. We trust that you will make a way when there is no way again. With softening hearts we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 13, verses eight through 14. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, 
you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here ends the reading inspired by our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This sermon is brought to you by Mayflower's Wednesday evening book study, Webs. And I lift up Webs as the inspiration for this sermon because I do want you to know who to blame should things get uncomfortable. As we know, Paul was writing to these early churches as their pastor, addressing real issues about their common life together and internal fights. And despite 2,000-year time gap, many of the issues and the fights are still very relevant, so sermons based on these letters can be very on the nose. So, complaints can be sent to webs at mayflowerucc.org. I had planned on keeping us in the book of Exodus, continuing the journey with Moses that we started last Sunday, until I picked up the book that Webbs is currently discussing, the one by Richard Haas, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. The Bill of Obligations is described as a provocative guide to how we must re-envision citizenship if American democracy is to survive. The author argues that for American democracy to survive, or better yet, thrive, the very idea of citizenship must be revised and expanded. The Bill of Rights is at the center of our Constitution, yet our most intractable conflicts often emerge from contrasting views as to what our rights ought to be. As former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer pointed out, many of our cases, the most difficult ones, are not about right versus wrong, but right versus right. Haas offers a quick summary of the Bill of Rights as amendments to the Constitution that limit the role and reach of government and allow individuals the freedom to speak, publish, and broadcast what they please, to advocate and organize for what they seek, to practice or to not practice religion, as they say fit, to start a business and accumulate wealth, to keep and bear arms, and a good deal else. A rights-based approach to citizenship is pervasive and is common to those on the political left and right alike. What distinguishes them is which rights they emphasize and support and which they oppose. We know what happens with a strong emphasis on rights. We saw it on January 6th when America's history of peaceful transition of power was neither peaceful nor certain. It 
is embodied in active attempts to limit voting rights, and we see it in the exploding economic inequality and insecurity all around us. But obligations, a bill of obligations, might impact that. Obligations, writes Haas, are different from requirements. Americans are required to observe the law, pay taxes, serve on juries, and respond to a military draft if there is one. There is no wiggle room here. Failure to meet requirements can result in a penalty, be it a fine, imprisonment, or both. But obligations are different, involving not what citizens must do, but what they should do. They are defined here as moral and political rather than legal commitments to be undertaken voluntarily. They are intended to be greater than responsibilities, which are all too easily shirked. What makes obligations so important is that the ability of American democracy to endure and deliver what it can and should to its citizens depends on those obligations being put into practice. So, the author proposes a bill of obligations which includes being informed, getting involved, staying open to compromise, staying open to compromise, <laughs> remaining civil, rejecting violence, valuing norms, promoting the common good, respecting government service, supporting and teaching civ civics, and putting country over party. Beyond rights, he says, obligations are the other cornerstones of a successful democracy. Obligations between individual citizens as well as between citizens and their government. Obligations, akin to what Danielle Allen calls habits of citizenship, are things that should happen but that the law cannot require. Without a culture of obligation coexisting alongside a commitment to rights, American democracy could well come undone. We need nothing less than a bill of obligations to guide how we teach, understand, and conduct our politics. This is indeed the argument that Paul makes in this passage, but about the life of faith. It's not enough for us to just follow the law, and we are familiar with the law Paul references. We hear about the Ten Commandments all the time from Ryan Walters, our state superintendent of public instruction, and the Oklahoma Advisory Council on Founding Principles, who keep insisting that the Ten Commandments should be displayed in our public schools. Walters and company believe that having a durable poster or framed copy of the Ten Commandments in classrooms will solve all our problems. I will tell you, though, I am unclear how having you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet will solve our teacher shortage or feed the 59% of Oklahoma children who are eligible for free or discounted meals, or restore funding for public education, which is at historic lows. You would think that with us living in the buckle of the Bible Belt, those things would have already been taken care of 
as a matter of faith. Something must be missing. It's not that the Ten Commandments aren't important or helpful. It's just that they're not enough. Just as Haas argues that the Bill of Rights needs an accompanying Bill of Obligations, the Ten Commandments need to be accompanied with love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If obligations are what's missing in our civic lives, love, it seems, is missing in our spiritual lives. But what is love? We are used to love being defined as a noun. Love is a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person or an intense feeling of deep affection. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul defines love in a series of adjectives. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude adjectives, words that modify or describe a noun. But as Bell Hooks writes, all the more astute theorists of love acknowledge that we would all love better if we used it as a verb. I spent years searching for a meaningful definition of the word love, writes Bell Hooks, and was deeply relieved when I found one in psychiatrist M. Scott Peck's classic self-help book, The Road Less Traveled, first published in 1978. Echoing the work of Eric Fromm, he defines love as the will to extend one's self for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Explaining further, he continues, love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely both an intention and an action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. Said another way, love is not the law. It is an obligation, one we have to ourselves and to each other. That love is not a legal requirement but a choice, explains Hook, is why everywhere we learn that love is important and yet we are bombarded by its failure in the realm of the political, among the religious, in our families, and in our romantic lives, we see little indication that love informs decisions, strengthens our understanding of community, or keeps us together. The whole world, it seems, suffers from a lack of love being put into action, enacted, embodied. We are in a state of lovelessness. We see it in the way we ignore climate crisis, let refugees fend for themselves on the open seas, stay quiet until an issue affects us personally, and in the way we sit with and talk to only the people we know or agree with. We repeatedly choose lovelessness and then wonder why things are going to hell in a handbasket. As Bell Hooks teaches, the injustice and systemic oppression that we see in the world today stem from a deep, collective lovelessness 
and it calls for an ethic of love. Today, at this church, we have some opportunities to choose to live an ethic of love. We call it Sign Me Up Sunday, but we could also call it Love Does Sunday. It is an opportunity for our ethic of love to inform our decisions about how we spend our time, where we spend our money, and how we shape our communities. After worship, I invite you to turn right instead of left and go into Milligan Hall where you will find ministries and missions that will help you love your neighbor in concrete ways. We can choose to strengthen our community and keep us bound to one another. Cook meals, deliver meals, contribute to buying meals, tutor children, mentor young people. Decide that spending one Saturday a year cleaning out, repairing, and restoring a neighbor's home with rebuilding together is not too much to ask. Consider that attending an open and affirming congregation is the lowest bar of entry. <laughs> and actively advocating for bodily autonomy is indeed how we love our queer teens and those who want to plan when they have their family. Participating in a group that strengthens community is how we impact things like affordable housing and reproductive justice and restorative justice, criminal reform. Let us ask ourselves today, what will we do to nurture our neighbor, our community, our local school, the well-being of this part of the garden. There are plenty of options, but we have to choose. I do not want to ignore the second part of today's reading. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. This sounds like talk of the second coming, which some of us do not think was ever part of the deal. We are surrounded by premillennial dispensationalists, which those are people who believe in an earthly millennial reign of Christ that is accompanied with a rapture of the faithful preceded by a seven-year-long period known as the tribulation. The late great preacher Fred Craddock used to say, that many people who are obsessed with the second coming are really just disappointed in the first. <laughs> While Paul wasn't exactly a dispensationalist in the way I just described, it's certainly fair to say that he had a different understanding of the end times than many of us do. And still, there is truth with a capital T in this passage. Namely, that the urgency with which Paul writes comes from his understanding of the immensity of the task before those young churches, which was 
Nothing less than working with God towards the transformation of the whole world. These two millennia later, that task still sits at the center of the mission of the church. And it is no less urgent for the passage of time or for the many failures and missed opportunities to make earth as it is in heaven. If the whole world suffers from lack of love being an action, we know what we have to do. We too believe that our work is nothing less than working with God towards the transformation of the world. You are welcome to stay in the sanctuary for as long as you need after the service to consider what love does. Although I do encourage you to not stay too long, for as Paul said, the night is far gone and the day is near. So as soon as you decide what love you're going to do, please go and find the corresponding sign-up sheet. I'll see you in Milligan Hall. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.